this edition of the Modern Times Podcast. John G's on again with Karen Weil. Hi, Karen. Hi, how are you? Hello to all our listeners. Hey, we have a special guest today, Karen. Yes, indeed. Uh, the author, W.A. Bogart, but we call him Bill, um, is going to be our guest today. He's the author of Off the Street, Legalizing Drugs by Dundurn Press. Um, he's a distinguished university professor and professor of law at the University of Windsor. Uh, he's also the author, editor of seven books, including Regulating Obesity, Government, Society, and Questions of Health. He blogs for the Huffington Post and is a frequent media commentator on the regulation of consumption. He lives in Toronto. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. A very um, maybe difficult book to write. I guess that's my first question. Um, a little bit about the background. You're kind of into that consumption. It's 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 one of your fields of study. Um, why did you decide to go after uh, legalization of drugs, and 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 what kind of impact did it have on your professional and and family life? Well, you know, I I've long been interested in looking at the actual effect that law has on underlying social, political, and economic issues. Like, well, when when the legislature passes legislation or judges make pronouncements, what effect do those, do those laws have on the social, political, economic issues that are sought to be addressed? And um, I began to think that looking at consumption was a, a very interesting place to study these uh, issues because we all consume, so it's something that people can um, relate to. And um, I've, I've done, amongst the eight books that I've done, the three most recent ones to focus on, on consumption. And um, while I was doing the two earlier books, it, it became clear to me that uh, non-medical use of drugs are an outlier with other aspects of, of consumption, uh, whether it's gambling or smoking or alcohol or non-nutritious foods. The overarching thing that has come about in the 21st, 20th and 21st centuries is one of permit but discourage. Right. We don't forbid those kinds of consumption, but we do discourage harmful use through a web of regulatory activities. And mm -hmm. remember that uh, in the case of alcohol, we at one time, uh, both in Canada and the United States, did prohibit consumption. Um, and then we realized that criminalization of alcohol was not the way to go, and so we we rolled that back and and have used a web of regulatory interventions to discourage damaging use, um, damaging use generally and certainly drunk driving in in particular. And and you know we're now seeing that kind of permit the discouraged uh, stance being applied to non-nutritious foods. Right. Uh, we don't ban them, but we do try to um, discourage a damaging use of non-nutritious foods. And, you know, an example that w we can relate to are the various efforts at um, taxing um, soda mm -hmm. and trying to drive down uh, consumption of uh, 
should we drink? Sure. So any event, um, as I began to look at non-medical use of drugs, I realized more and more that they were outliers that we still use criminalization to uh-huh. try to uh, prevent people from using drugs huh. generally and then certainly to uh, not to engage in harmful use. And I began to ask myself, um, well, is that is that the best way to go about uh, trying to uh, ward off harmful use? Sure. And, you know, slowly by slow, and measure by measure, by looking at various studies and and pieces of evidence, I came to be persuaded that it wasn't. That Uh a better way to go about this was to shift away from criminalization and move towards uh, legalization and regulation. And that has resulted in the book, Off the Street, Legalizing Drugs. Right. And I I really liked, um, early on, you made it clear... um, I'm going to read a passage here. It says, in case you're wondering, I don't use recreational drugs. I tried marijuana a few times many years ago in university, but I found it too acrid and too sudden an impact. I also don't gamble or smoke. I do, however, enjoy some drugs, a good class of Shiraz, sometimes some champagne, (laughs) and occasionally a gin martini. There, now you know. Um, Did you think it was kind of important to kind of make that statement? Um, You know, besides your resume that we went over in the beginning, that's also kind of one of these things that just says, I'm looking at this as an academic. Is that, was that some of the motivation besides, you know, behind giving people your personal experience? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, you know, when you write a book about consumption, it's very interesting how people then begin to speculate uh, about how much uh, one is personally in- invested in the issues. So I have to tell you that um, in terms of my uh, next, uh, my book before Off the Street, which was regulating obesity, uh, I had a number of experiences when I was doing interviews by phone, so the journalist could not see me. Uh-huh. The journalist would gradually inch toward what you know, whether I was obese or not. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, I, I happened not to be obese, uh, but it was very interesting. I came to see that people um, were curious about, as I said, the, the, the extent to which there was a sort of personal investment in the topic. And so I thought I would make it very clear right at the beginning that I don't use non I don't use non-medical um, drugs. Um, I also think it's important that um, people who don't use drugs, but who are persuaded of the case for moving towards the legalization and regulation, uh, stand up for those who are using drugs. Right. Uh, in other words, I, I don't. I don't use drugs. I could just say, well, that's somebody else's issue, it's somebody else's problem, but I, I think that it's actually a, a societal problem, and um, and I think that, you know, someone who doesn't use drugs should be prepared to say, look, the people who do use drugs are like criminals. Um, it's a public health issue, certainly death, consumption, 
um, should be discouraged, and, and I'm all for that. And first and foremost, I'm for protecting kids because kids shouldn't be using drugs. Right. But at the end of the day, I think that by and large, criminalization is not the answer. Hmm. Um, you you spent at least a good 10 pages, I think, early on just talking about the history of drug criminalization. <laughs> um, can you kind of, you know, sum 10 pages up for us or or give us those real strong points that, that, that created this whole uh, criminalization industry, um, you know, about 100 years ago? Yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, the history, it's very important to have a sense of history. In, well, generally, it's important to have a sense sure. of history. But uh, in terms of non-medical use of drugs, it's really very important. And the reason I say that is that um, up until uh, the start of the 20th century, um, consumption, of, uh, use of non-medical use of drugs was was largely seen as something that the law was indifferent to. Um, people used laudanum, which is a mix of alcohol and opium, as a kind of daily pick-me-up. Um, opium was used to soothe babies. Uh, Sears Roebuck um, advertised kits uh, to better use the wonder drug of... of um, uh, 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 not, uh, not, uh, morphine. Sorry, uh-huh. morphine. Just lost the drug there for a moment. No, that's fine. Um, and uh, you know, Freud had a cocaine period. Sure. Uh, it's the thought that um, um, Stevenson wrote the um, Doctor Jekyll and Hyde while on a cocaine high. I mean, it, it, drugs were widely available and they were widely used, and like nobody thought. The last of it, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly people were concerned that somebody had developed a dependency on drugs, but it was never thought that the answer to all of this was uh, drug criminalization. Um, then came along uh, a kind of fear of the Chinese who were engaged uh, in the opium trade, and a kind of moral panic set in at the uh, turn of the 20th century, um, this panic was led by the United States, but it certainly wasn't um, only in the United States. Canada has it, had its own version. Sure. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, by sort of the 20s, 30s, um, uh, both uh, recreational drugs, heroin, cocaine, uh, morphine, were uh, sorry those drugs were were banned for recreational purposes and as was alcohol um and then but but what happened was the the, the lessons of the cost of prohibition in terms of alcohol were learned and societies Canada America included moved away from prohibition to the regulatory model, but that didn't happen with drugs. Drugs continued to be demonized uh-huh. and continued to be criminalized, and if anything, enforcement measures nationally and internationally were strengthened. So we get to the position that, well, I should say we got to the position that we were by the turn of the, of the 21st century, and, and and then we see these 
experiments going on with legalization and regulation. Sure. Um, most prominently in terms of marijuana, and you and your listeners will be very familiar with um, how individual states in the United States are moving towards legalization yep. and regula- re- re- regulation. Uh, Canada uh, is about to pass uh, a bill at the federal level uh, it will be introduced uh, this spring, and um, uh, it, it, that will see marijuana legalized and regulated throughout the country. Um, Portugal, about 12 years ago, um, decriminalized uh, the, the use of practically all um uh, drugs, uh, and we can talk about decriminalization and the difference between decriminalization and, and legalization and regulation in a moment, if you like. Sure. But that's that's a very quick and and brief uh, history of how we got to where we are today. Right. Yeah. And it seems like you had you had uh, alluded to a hollowing out, or I guess not even alluded to it, but that was the. Um, way that you termed it um, of, of of drug policy, and that the war on drugs will end eventually, um, and that criminalization has been a failure. So, you know, can you talk a little bit more about hollowing out and um, and 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 that it's tied into these changes on what's going on in the U.S. and in Portugal and other countries? Sure. Well, um, you, you know, let's talk about the what the war on drugs has brought about. Um, you know, its central purpose was to end the use of drugs. And we we know that in the 20 or 30 or 40 years that the war has been going on, suppression has not been successful. And indeed, in some instances, uh, rates of use have even increased. But beyond that, the war has imposed very significant collateral costs. Uh, we've put people in jail simply because they use a substance. We've uh, had police, very significant police resources devoted to enforcing these laws when those resources could have been used elsewhere. Um, the, the war has given rise to uh, an, an unlawful market run by criminals, uh, governments have been deprived of a revenue source from an industry, and it is an industry, and and children have been exploited in terrible ways. And what I mean by hollowing out is that the, this, this criminalization of drugs, the ending of it, and therefore the ending of the war, I, I think will not suddenly occur. We, we are coming to realize these collateral costs that the war has imposed, and many societies are trying to do something about those collateral costs and are gradually realizing that to do something about that, they're going to have to move away from, from criminalization towards legalization and regulation. So, to give an example, um, I mean, part of that hollowing out is that sense of, well, maybe marijuana is a different, maybe it's a quote-unquote soft drug, maybe we don't have to be concerned about it as much, and the evidence 
would suggest that although it's not a harmless drug, um, and certainly kids shouldn't be using it, uh-huh. um, the, the use of marijuana, moderate use of marijuana, can actually is not harmful, and we also have come to realize that marijuana can have therapeutic effects, the so-called medical use of marijuana, and so you know the support for um, criminalization and enforcement of laws prohibiting the consumption of marijuana is fading, and if you look at the polls, uh, support for criminalization is decreasing, and support for legalization and regulation is increasing, and certainly for um, medical use of marijuana, and Canada has had medical marijuana legalized now for about 15 years, uh, but even recreational marijuana, the the numbers on the whole tend to just be on the upside uh-huh. um, and have reached in Canada now by some polls sort of 75% support. Wow. That, it's that sort of... That's the sort of activity uh, and shift in opinion that I'm talking about when I talk about hollowing out, but I certainly could give you other examples as well. Yeah, Yeah, when what I thought was kind of interesting, at least from our um, Southern American um, uh, uh, point of view, is I hadn't heard about the drug treatment courts um, that I guess are um, were started in Canada and now are on their way back, at least I think. That's what I got from what you wrote, but maybe you can explain that for a lot of our American listeners about the drug treatment courts and what's different about them in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, certainly you folks have drug drug treatment courts as well, and you know, in fairness, um, some people who would continue to support criminalization would say, "Look." Um, it's not straightforward that somebody who is using drugs recreationally ends up in jail. Uh, there are alternatives, and one of these alternatives are drug treatment courts, and they basically operate by saying to the individual who's been apprehended, look, if you accept treatment, you would have to go to jail, and as long as you abide by uh-huh. the conditions uh, of treatment, um, you can stay out of prison. And, you know, the, the idea behind drug, drug, drug treatment courts uh, is laudable in, in some ways because sure. it, it does relieve the harshness of the criminal law, and it could be said um, that, that in some respects it, it is also part of the hollowing out, right? That, oh, Sending somebody to prison just because they use a substance doesn't seem to be, it's not good for the individual, it's costly to society, et cetera, et cetera. But, mm-hmm. but that, there, you know, there are problems with drug, drug treatment courts. I mean, one of which is that if you are dependent, um, people who are dependent will often get themselves into trouble because people who are dependent and who are trying to get off the drug often go through periods of, of relapse. I mean, there's a pattern. They often have to take several runs at it 
before they actually will stop the drug. And, and incidentally, people who, are, who who have ever smoked may be familiar with this pattern, right? It's it's very few people can just go cold turkey and stay cold turkey when they're trying to quit smoking. It it takes them several attempts over several years. And a lot of people can get off that very addictive drug. Even though it's legal, it's very addictive, it's highly toxic. But my point to you here is that that relapse problem often leads to a, a view that the person has violated the court order, and so they end up going to prison in any event, and they keep going on on the drugs because we know the prisons are full of drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. The other problem with drug treatment courses um you have individuals that say, well, in fact, I am not dependent on this drug. Right. Lots of people can use even drugs like heroin and cocaine and not be dependent. You don't automatically become addicted just because you're experimenting with heroin and cocaine. I'd like to make it very clear to your listeners. I am not, therefore, suggesting that anybody experiment with heroin and cocaine. There's lots of reasons not to go near those drugs, but it remains the fact that people can use heroin and cocaine, and certainly marijuana, and not be dependent. So if they're apprehended and they're brought to a drug treatment court, they're caught between a rock and and a hard place. In order to avoid jail, they have to sort of, quote-unquote, confess to being dependent when, in fact, they're not. So it leads to a kind of warped use of court resources and a kind of uh, penalization and stigmatization of somebody who is not, in fact, dependent. And there are other problems with drug treatment courts as well. But at the end of the day, the biggest problem is, of course, is it may be a more lenient way of treating the individual, but it, it, it's still cr- criminalizing use. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, it's the whole did... point of arguments around legalization and regulation of recreational drugs is that use of these drugs should not be treated as a criminal issue. Exactly, it should be treated as a public health issue. Yeah, and and and, and if I can, if I can interpret, you know, and obviously I want you to, you know, correct me if I if I misstep here, but it seemed that. And just like you had said, you're not encouraging anyone to go out and try these things. You don't actually think that most of them, that 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 most of these drugs should be used. Um, but that if you want to effectively battle abuse, um, and and to to to, see, to to quote something directly from your book here, you say it's useless to curtail consumption by attempting to cut supply. That and that's the current war on drugs. With that, is that a char- mm-hmm. uh, accurate characterization? And that's why. You still think that those courts aren't effective? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I think we're moving into uh, um, a discussion of of what may be one of the most compelling arguments about the war. That there was this thought that if you somehow cut off supply, that would lead to to people not using drugs. Why? Because, of course, they simply couldn't get them. But the problem is that we've seen time and time again that efforts to cut off supply overall are not effective. Uh, And that's because as long as there's demand, there will be supply. 
as long as as people want these drugs, they'll the the car, the cartels in the underworld will find a way to supply them. And you right. know, if you if they arrest one drug lord like El Chapo, who seems to be in the news so much these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another drug lord that comes to take his place because it's not a hierarchical arrangement. It's, it's really a series of networks. And there's always somebody who is willing and able to take over the role and um, provide supply. Um, and, and so the efforts to drive down the rates of consumption and by and large, I'm all for efforts to drive down rates of consumption, really have to focus on demand. You have to persuade people that, look, you need to be careful about how you use these drugs. Um, That heroin, you can easily overdose on it. Heroin, if you become dependent, you you may then take to the streets. You may not know what's uh, your supplier is giving you, they can be tainted, the drugs can be tainted, they can make you sick, uh, you you may be told that you're buying heroin when what you're buying is bootleg fentanyl, which can kill you, you know, we've got a horrible problems with that uh, in Canada, and so on and so forth. But So it's really the focus needs to be on attempting to the greatest extent to drive down demand. Now, at the end of the day, will we ever suppress demand completely? Very unlikely. And that's why, you know, we, we nevertheless should treat the remaining um, use as one of uh, public health concern and not a criminal one. Right. It's, <clears throat> Karen, do you have something? Well, I was just wondering, um, you know, if you've been talking about decriminalization, obviously, um, I, if if drugs are legalized, who do you think should be regulating them and why? Well, uh, so, so let me just pause and and because uh, I think it, it's helpful to your readers. Uh, let me pause and just draw a distinction between decriminalization and legalization and regulation. Okay, great. Um, so, for example, as I said earlier, um, Portugal has essentially decriminalized uh, most recreational drugs and has done so for about 15 years. So what it means is that in Portugal, you can, an individual can possess and consume for up to 10 days use of drugs um, for their for their own purposes, and and that is not a criminal offense. However, decriminalization does not speak to the supply side, so it still means that Portugal, and under any decriminalization regime, individuals have to get their supply of drugs from the illicit market. There's no quality assurance, so those drugs can be tainted in some way. Uh, the, the government is deprived of a, a, a revenue source because per, supply, sale of drugs remains illegal, and a full range of harm reduction um, strategies are not available. 
So decriminalization takes away the threat of criminal punishment for, from users, but doesn't really speak to supply issues, whereas legalization or regulation covers the waterfront. It's neither a criminal offense to possess and consume drugs, and uh, uh, those uh, drugs can be purchased from a source that is either the government itself or uh, overseen by government regulation so that the, the price of the drugs is controlled, the quality of the drugs is controlled, um, and the government uh, has resort to a revenue source because, of course, uh, the, 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 the drugs are now can now be taxed because they're, sure. they're legal. Right. Um, so then to turn to your specific question, you know, I think when, in terms of legalization and regulation regimes, there's sort of a division of opinion about how much the government should be directly involved uh, in the sale of drugs. There's a sort of a common agreement that government would have a role in making sure that drugs can be can be legally available, that there's conditions to assure that uh, what is being sold is there's quality assurance and the the potency of the drug is is clearly known, um, and that government should have access to a revenue source based on its ability to tax, but uh, whether the, dr the um, drugs should be actually uh, produced by the government and sold by the government directly, or whether there could be a larger role for the private sector is, um, you know, matter for debate. And we're seeing that debate in right. Canada now as we're on the eve of legalization and regulation. It's, it's not clear yet the extent to which government will be directly involved in the sale as opposed to overseeing uh, production and sale uh, to make sure that, as I said, there's, there's the quality is there, that it's properly taxed, it's properly priced, etc. Right. Uh, thank you. Uh, my next question is, and, and uh, given that I'm sure you followed our uh, presidential election, and uh, the individual in the White House now uh, made uh, OxyContin or, you know, a painkiller abuse uh, a uh, part of his campaign. Uh, some, of course, would question that given uh, it seems like a lot of the media attention has been focused on, and I'll, I'll just bring this up, white America uh, in terms of this uh, problem with prescription narcotics mm -hmm, for pain mm -hmm. relief. And, and so my question is, and, and not to go off on track, you, you know, we'll call the uh, actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, who died in 2014. Of course, yes. he had been addicted to painkillers, and then because when he could no longer get those, sought out heroin to mm -hmm. uh, fill his need, and sadly is no longer with us. Um, and that's just, I bring up that celebrity case because, again, it started magnifying the attention uh, to the uh, uh, prescription painkiller uh, epidemic uh, that was starting to affect this country, I'd say about 10 or so, 10 to 15 years ago. How does prescription drugs, how do they factor into abuse and legalization? I see your book does cover that, so if you could uh, go into detail about that. Well, uh, yes. Um, 
And I can tell you and your listeners that we have a horrible opioid crisis on our hands in Canada as well. So wow. we are okay. not immune from this in any event. Right. Um, but so it's a tragedy. It's a it's a horrible yeah. tragedy. Absolutely. But I think the way we in Canada are addressing that tragedy actually points the way towards legalization and regulation. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, I know of no uh, responsible voice in Canada that is saying, well, the solution to the opioid crisis is to round up these people, arrest them, and put them in jail. Because, strictly, you know, they are committing, many of them are committing an illegal offense. They're using... Uh, prescription drugs without a natural prescription. They're uh, going to the street, buying heroin, or even worse, buying bootleg fentanyl, and etc. But instead of saying, yes, arrest them, throw them in jail, uh, we are distributing naloxone, which is, as you and your listeners know, an opioid inhibitor, so that it's somebody is overdosing and they're given naloxone, it blocks the effects of the opioid, hopefully long enough so that they can brought to an emergency department, et cetera, et cetera. We're passing Good Samaritan laws so that if somebody is partaking in a drug-taking session and somebody overdoses and uh, the police are called, those people who call the police will not be prosecuted because the thought is it's better to save lives than to uh, charge people criminally in those conditions. Um, and uh, we are op- we have long had a safe injection site in Vancouver, and now we're opening more across the country. And again, you and your listeners know that safe injection sites are really harbors. They say to people who are using opioids, most prominently heroin, but not exclusively, look, come to the site and use the drugs at the site and we will not charge you because we don't want you using dirty needles and getting horrible infections. We don't want you to use um, adulterated drugs and we don't want you to overdose. Um, and but but you can come and you can do in our in front of us what is otherwise a criminal offense because we now are intent upon preserving health and saving lives. And the next step in this saga in Canada is that we will soon uh, be distributing uh, medically-grade heroin to people who come to the safe injection sites. Like right now, they have to bring their own drugs. But soon we will be, they can actually come and we will say, here, take this drug, because we know... Uh, it's the strength that it's supposed to be. We know that it's not tainted, and we know that it's very unlikely that you'll overdose because of the amount that we know we're giving it to you. And in any event, we have doctors and nurses at the site, so if you overdose, you know, we'll be able to save your life. Um, And that's all looking at this, not through a criminal lens, but through a public health lens. So as I said, the the opioid epidemic is a great tragedy, but it's also pointing the way towards legalization and regulation. 
you and your listeners probably know, uh, Seattle has just opened a safe injection site. So America uh-huh. now is, I heard has, that. Its first, yeah. it has its first safe injection site. So we'll see where all that goes in, in that state. So well, Yeah, very interesting. Um, I wanted you to explain, uh, please, the concept of the least bad policy, which I, I thought was pretty uh, intriguing. Well, the least bad policy is actually a quote from The Economist, and The Economist has more or less taken the position on drugs that I take in uh, off the street, and, and The Economist has taken that position for several years now. And what I mean by the least bad policy and what it means is, is look, there's no, there's no good policy when you approach drugs. This notion that we can have a drug-free world is a fantasy. It's certainly a fantasy when we include the, the two legal ones, alcohol and tobacco. And we need to think about drugs including alcohol and tobacco, because those two drugs are capable of doing enormous harm, especially tobacco, highly addictive, highly toxic. So the least bad policy is to acknowledge that people will take drugs and then try to do whatever we can using a public health lens to drive down harmful consumption to the greatest extent possible. Right. Uh, my, my next question is, do you, do you see, I mean, I, I know Justin Trudeau has been your prime minister for about a year and a half now. Yeah, something like that. Do you, is, what are his attitudes on uh, Canada's drug policy? And, and is, has he been what you consider a, a cooperative partner in moving the country towards legalization of marijuana or perhaps a, a, you know, a less harsh attitude towards other types of drug use? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you know, he and the Liberal government, uh, which he had, uh, made it a part of their campaign uh, platform in the last uh, election, which was uh, 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 fall of 15. And um, legalization of marijuana uh, and regulation of marijuana was part of the election uh, platform. And he has repeatedly since he has become prime minister that marijuana will be legalized and regulated. He appointed a task force uh, to bring forth specific recommendations. They reported in um, December and uh, he and his cabinet members have uh, again repeatedly said that there will be legislation um, forthcoming in uh, this spring. So uh, I, I, anything can happen, as you are aware. But I think that Canada is on the road to legalization and regulation of marijuana within um, a year or so, and of oh, course. Wow. Medical marijuana has been legal in this country for mm, about 15 years. Now, in terms of the other drugs, um, you know, there's been no pronouncement from the prime minister, but certainly the minister of health has now said repeatedly that the opioid uh, epidemic should be treated as a public health emergency. So she's picking up this attitude that I just described uh, a couple of minutes ago, and she's um, supportive of the efforts of opening up more 
uh, safe injection sites. Under her watch, Health Canada has said, yes, doctors can now begin to, to prescribe heroin medically, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera. And, and I can tell you that public opinion is inching. So, you know, it's not galloping, it's inching towards um, a greater acceptance of a public health stance on the use of drugs, not only marijuana, but other drugs. I mean, uh, um, a poll taken in uh, British Columbia, which is on you know the West Coast, like California, and where, right. where the problems with opioids are particularly acute, um, a recent poll had two-thirds of those who were asked saying that they would contemplate the notion of a general legalization and regulation of drugs. Um, we're a distance from that, absolutely, but I do believe we're moving in that direction. Wow, very interesting. Um, do you think, and I, I realize Canada is its own, I mean, Americans sometimes like to joke that Canada is the 51st state. That is not a, you held by me or John, I think it's fair to say, obviously. It's very no, much its own country with different attitudes on various issues. Do you, it obviously, in our country right now, we have a president who, I suppose you could say, has a somewhat regressive attitude <laughs> on uh, on the drug issue. Jeff Sessions, who might become attorney general, although it's likely he will be, if you've been following that, yeah. uh, has made it very clear he does not favor marijuana legalization and would work to stop it. Uh, do you see that? And it, it, you know, having any effect on what Canada is doing, or do you think it could become maybe a, a sore spot? Uh, Trudeau and Trump have not met yet. Obviously, there's some agreement on something like the Keystone XL pipeline. Very different issue, I know. But do you do you think at all that that could become any kind of sore spot, given what this uh, our U.S. administration's attitude is versus versus Canada's? Yeah, no, I think there there is potential for. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, problems, although I, I don't necessarily think there'll be problems. And I'll start by saying that, um, you know, I, I do understand, do hear what you, you said about, uh, Mr. Session and Mr. Trump. At the same time, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump, uh, about 10 years ago when asked said, oh no, the, the solution to all this is to legalize and regulate drugs. That's the only way to as the kingpins. So, you know, Mr. Trump's not Known for his consistency, if I may be permitted. To uh, say you, that. that would be correct. <laughs> he is not. <laughs> so you know, it depends on w which way he jumps. And you know, I do think that um, they've got a lot of issues, and they've seen a lot of pushback already on some of those issues. Right. Uh, take on on states like. Colorado and Washington and uh, Cal California. In Nevada, right. People have voted to legalize and regulate. Yeah. Um, you, you know, they'd be taking on a great big chunk of voters, some of whom are Republican, but who nevertheless fa favor legalization and regulation. So right. could it happen? Yes. Will it happen? Uh, not so sure. Now, if, however, they do become drug warriors, and remember, Russia is a drug warrior, uh -huh. very much yeah. in support of the war on drugs, this could cause problems for Canada and in a number of ways, but most particularly, um, when Canada legalizes and regulates marijuana, it will not be in compliance with its obligations under international covenants uh, focused yeah, right. 
control because most of those covenants assume a prohibition model. Uh, and if we legalize and regulate, clearly we will not be faithful to a prohibition model. Um, now, there are ways in which Canada can bring itself into conformity uh, and, and you know, an understanding United States, if I may put it that way, would say, well, yes, let's just see how we can evolve so that countries like Canada and incidentally Uruguay, because Uruguay is on, pretty well on the same path, um, can experiment with the legalization and regulation and, and yet still be seen to be supportive of the covenants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If on the other hand, um, Mr. Trump gets mad at us <laughs> and Mr. Trudeau, then he will be able to go around and say, uh, well, Canada thinks it's so smart and clever and superior and what else, uh, and it doesn't even comply with its international sure. covenant. So you see where I'm going with right. all of this. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I don't have yeah, a crystal ball. Hey. So we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen on any number of fronts right. when it comes to Mr. Trump. Yeah, and that's almost right. another. Another ahead, point that you're bringing up, I think, is 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 a valid one. How endemic um, the kind of prohibition stances become that even if the U.S. decided to to legalize, they would v violate um, the same the same norms in some of these agreements. Um, but it's a bigger it's a lot uh, bigger difference comparing Canada's economy to Uruguay's. And so, you know, I think there's something to be said. Do you think? Uh, the largest economy to kind of take that gamble so far. Well, that's right. And also, uh, you know, member of the G7. And so, mm -hmm. you know, part of that small club, right. Um, is, um, that, that America is, is a partner in as sure. well. Um, so, um, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to see, uh, on the other hand, um, I think it would be very embarrassing for Mr. Trudeau uh, to uh, back away from legalization and regulation at this point because he said repeatedly during the campaign and has said repeatedly after his election that marijuana will be legalized and regulated. Um, so I, I, my guess is Canada will move ahead. And um, we're just going to have to see what happens. And my hope is that uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Sessions will decide that they have, uh, you know, larger and more insistent issues to address and that um, we can all be kind of calm, cool and collected as we engage in these various experiments uh, in an attempt to sort of uh, break the hold of the prohibition mold. Right. Bill, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to thank you for joining us um, today and, and for all the insightful uh, uh, comments that you had. Um, I don't think we could have had a better guest today. Well, Absolutely. thank you very much. And, um, you I know, agree. I, I would say uh, to your listeners, I, um, you know, off the street is not written as a set of company. It doesn't say there's nothing to debate or discuss around drugs. There's an enormous amount. Um, I think 
it's really intended for somebody who says, look, I, I, I really worry about the war on drugs. I, I really think that there might be a better way. And the book is intended to facilitate a discussion about what might be another way. Sure. Uh, but I hope it does it in a rational and reasonable manner. Once again, um, Off the Street, Legalizing Drugs, uh, W.A. Bogart, Distinguished Professor at the University of Windsor. Thanks again, Mr. Bogart. Or Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. Join us next week. Uh, we'll have another podcast for you. I think we're good doing a uh, rock on with Joe and Julie. Um, and Karen and I will be back in a couple weeks. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Bye.